kind of wrapping up where we've been through in the book of Romans. Um, I do want us to start with prayer, though. And at the end of the service, um, I want to do something a little bit different. I occasionally give an invitation for you to respond to the teaching of the Word of God, but I want to give that invitation right now if there's something that you want to be to pray for or someone to pray for you um, we are here together as a church body and I just sense that there's some some deeper needs uh, this morning that are represented here um, I don't go by my feelings or the, sometimes I, I go by what I hear um, and then the Lord impresses on my heart to make a decision with regard to that. So this morning, if you just are here with a heavy heart, or maybe the Word of God is going to touch your heart, I don't know how the Lord's going to work in this service, but I do want to just invite anybody who wants to come, and we'll meet here at the front at the end of the service for prayer, and um, as a body of believers, to, to lift each other up and to encourage each other. So let's, let me pray. Father God, guide us through this teaching this morning, Lord. Holy Spirit, you be our teacher. Help us, Father, to peel back all the calluses of our heart and receive with meekness the implanted, the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. God, help us to come with humility, looking into a mirror so that we see ourselves as we are in the reflection of your word. God, help us to make application today, Lord. We don't want to go through the motions of playing the game of religion. God, we want to have a living relationship with you, a God that speaks to our heart through a living word that we respond to in love. This is the love of God that we keep your commandments. So, Lord, today as you open our eyes to what we need to apply I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit will take his inspired word through the writings of the Apostle Paul and apply them richly, deeply, and there'll be life-changing experiences here in this worship place, not because these four walls are anything special, but because your Holy Spirit is in our midst, and this is a dwelling place. This is a holy temple. And you are here among us today, Lord. We invite and submit to your Lordship, Jesus. Amen. So, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 7 through 25. So, it is a long section of Scripture. And I had never realized it before until I started this study that this is a passage of Scripture that has been discussed and debated and has caused great division in the Christian church throughout church history. I was never aware of that. And as I began to study and look deeper, I began to see what caused that division. And, um, and if you look at church history, it tells us a lot about um, how man comes to the Bible and starts to lay layers of theology that has been written by other men, and they overlay that on Scripture, and then you and I come with that lens already sort of pre-packaged or pre-programmed, and that's the what we read into it, and we find exactly what we're looking for because we've been conditioned to look for that. For example, I have about four study Bibles and I looked at every one of my study Bibles, and they had headings over the passage, particularly in verse 13 to 25, and all of them said something similar to the fact that this is the battle of two natures, or the believer's struggle with sin. And so when you look at that, you read it, and you see it as you've been conditioned to look at it and see it. And so it's, it's not easy for any of us to just sort of pull back and get a picture of what the original 
author and the audience was trying to say. And so that's something we're going to try to do this morning. Um, but like I said, this, this passage unfortunately has divided Christians and that they've even broken off fellowship over the way that they interpret this passage. And so I'm going to present both views, and I hope it doesn't divide our church. I hope we don't have a church that's split over this. I, I hope that we are gracious enough to understand that this is not an essential doctrine. But there are different ways to apply it, determining on the way that you approach it. And so I'm going to I'm going to give you both approaches to be fair and to be honest and also because I am struggling personally where do I sit on this issue and the issue is is Paul talking about his own current struggle with sin or is Paul speaking emphatically about his former state as a Pharisee and as a moralistic Jew who looked at the law and yet was unable to live out the righteous requirements of the law. Now, to be honest with you, I have never even considered that as a possible interpretation of this passage, ever. I remember as a teenager, the first time I read it, it just seemed to me the logical, natural flow is that Paul was talking about a current struggle that he has right now. And I could identify with that struggle because there were times that things that I didn't want to do that I did. And there was things that I knew I was supposed to do that I didn't do. And I felt in my inner man, I wanted to do those things. But how to accomplish them, I felt like I, I often failed. So to me, that was just a natural reading of the text. And I, I never really considered any other position until I was in Ireland and the young man approached me and discussed his position and it seemed foreign to me and I kind of dismissed it and I've really not revisited that until I had to sit down and thoroughly study this passage, look at the linguistic style of this passage and to really go back to some of the early church leaders who themselves were Greek-speaking Greek readers. And I found it to be interesting that those early church leaders who read and spoke Greek as their first language, the majority of them looked at this passage in a completely different way than I saw it. They looked at this passage as Paul, as an unregenerated Jewish Pharisee. And so that began some questioning in my mind. How should I approach this passage of Scripture then? Then I also discovered that Augustine was the first notable church father who deviated from that position, and that was in the 4th century or the 5th century. So you've got this pattern for four centuries and then somebody deviates. And then I begin to study why he deviated. Augustine had a vendetta against a man named Pelagius. And Pelagius believed that man had a free will. And Augustine, being a Manichaean disciple before he became a Catholic monk, believed that man was pre-programmed he had no will. Everything was written in every choice that he made. It was already sovereignly chosen before he ever made it. And Pelagius used this passage to show that Paul, before he was saved, struggled with his will. And so Augustine flipped his decision because he didn't want Pelagius to have a proof text to support his teaching. And then Pelagius was declared a heretic. And if you want to really get the boogeyman out to scare people, you tell people, oh, you're becoming a semi-Pelagiist. Soon as you believe that man has a responsible choice to make, then you're labeled that. 
And so unfortunately, this has carried over with all the reformers, with the exception of John Wesley and some other Arminian-type believers. And so that's where the division really hit. But it's also interesting to note that the Greek Orthodox Church and the Western Church both split on this. The Greek Orthodox Church has always taught and believed that this was Paul as an unbelieving, moralistic Pharisee struggling and striving about the law and how he couldn't fulfill it. And so this is starting to stretch my mind, and it's beginning to make me uncomfortable. Every one of us, if we are honest, when we are approached with a teaching that we've never heard before, our natural reaction is to resist and to defend our position. And it's hard for us to draw back and say, okay, what is the biblical position? So I want to first start by looking at what Paul is talking about, the law, and what the law is meant to be used for and what is not to be used for. So I've got three passages that I want us to turn to to look at that. The first one is chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. And this will kind of give us an overview of what the law was intended to do and what it was not intended to do. So 3.19. Now we know, and if I misquote it, that's okay. I'll do the best I can. Now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before him. Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So I'm going to cover these quickly so we can get to the main part of the passage. So I I want to just give us four things that this passage teaches about the law. First of all, the law was intended to silence every Jewish person who looked at the law for a means of righteousness. There's none righteous. No, not one. That's what the law said. So it silenced every Jewish mouth. Secondly, it made the entire world guilty. The word guilty is a compound word in the original language. It's hupodekios. It means to be under judgment. Literally, this word means also to be accountable answerable for our actions. That's all the law could do, is it makes you answerable. It makes you accountable for what you did. Thirdly, the law was not meant to bring justification. The law was to give us the knowledge of our sin. Let's quickly jump to another passage, 4.13-15. through 15. For the promise that he would be heir of the world, not to Abraham to proceed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who were of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promises of no effect, because the law brings about. The word brings about, katar geto, it's a powerful word. It works it, it produces it, it gives it all the energy that it needs to bring about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. There's still sin, but you can't transgress something. We know that there's still sin because of Romans chapter 5. It says that even though there was no law from Adam to Moses, men still died because men were still sinners. But now there's transgressions. You can actually see when you step over the line. Parapeteo is transgression to step over, go beyond what you were supposed to do. Three things here. The promised blessing to Abraham were not through law. The law was meant was never meant to replace faith. Faith came first. If those who keep the law inherit God's promise, then there is no reason to have faith. Thirdly, the law brings or accomplishes, achieves, it causes it to be worked out. Wrath, that's what it does. It exposes sin. Let's go to chapter 5, verse 13 and verse 20. 5, 13. 
For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. That doesn't mean you're not guilty. The word imputed has the idea to reckon up, to account, or to keep track of. We're still sinners. You just can't keep track of it. Now you can know how many times you've lied. Now you can know how many times you've coveted something. That's the idea. Sin is imputed now because there's a law. Let's go over to 520. 520 tells us this. Moreover, the law entered, and this has to blow the mind of a Jewish person. Put yourself in a first century Jew who loves the law of God, who says that I am a disciple of Moses. In fact, that's exactly what... They said to the the blind beggar who was healed miraculously, and he begins to school the Pharisees. And they say, you are his disciple. We are Moses' disciple. We cherish and we love the law. And so you think about a first century Jew. Let's put our minds there because this is who this is being written to. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Wow. Wow. That had to be so earth-shaking. And that was, this is the context of Paul's diatribe in chapter 7. That was a word I learned this week. I wanted to use it on you. <laughs> diatribe. You're probably thinking, some of you smart folks out there already know what it means. But that was a new word for me. It means a vehement argument that you do passionately through rhetorical reasoning. And that's what Paul just unleashes in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And that was something I had never seen before. Because we are reading it through our Western eyes. We are reading it through the 21st century. We are not reading this through somebody who's been schooled in Hellenistic thought and rhetoric, and exaggerating speech. We don't think that way. We don't read that way. But you're going to quickly see what I'm talking about here. And it's interesting that after that verse, 520 and 21, that's where Paul begins his rhetorical arguments. Because this is where it really hits the road. So he says, Sin is abounding, but where sin is abounding, grace is superabounding. So that death reigned, uh, so that sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. So then Paul begins his rhetorical responses in 6 and 7. And there's a pattern that you're going to see really quickly. I, and it's, it's, I don't know why I never saw it before, to be honest with you. It's so obvious now that I know it's there, and you're going to see it as well. And maybe, like I said, some of you are probably better Bible scholars than I am, and you've already seen this, and you say, oh, yeah, duh, Pastor. That's that's obvious. But what it is is Paul gives a rhetorical question. Then he gives an obvious answer that's an exaggeration. Then he gives a short answer, and then he explains the short answer with a long answer. So there's... Four things that we should be looking for. The rhetorical question, the obvious aha question or duh, the short answer, and then a long explanation of that short answer. So four things. And he does it in a sequential form that finally comes to a full conclusion in chapter 7, verse 13. It's all one unit. And I never saw that before. So let's look at the first rhetorical question in 6.1. What shall we say then? That's the little formula. Look over at verse 13. I mean verse 15. What then? Same kind of idea. Let's go over to 7 and chapter 1. Or do you not know? Let's go over to 7 and 7. What shall we say then? Let's go over to 7.13. Has then what is good become death to me? 
So you can start to see this pattern that flows through these two chapters. So his first question is, do we just sin in order to get more grace? The obvious answer is, in all of these, it's two words in the original language, may, which is not, and may is used not in the indicative mood, but in the subjunctive mood. And the subjunctive mood is a mood that is used for for probability, and it's used for things that are just so unbelievably, unmanageably uh, unreal, I guess you might say. May it never be, would be a literal translation. The King James says, God forbid. The New King James says, certainly not. But if you've got a literal translation, like maybe an NASB, it says, may it never be. And that's the, the, the obvious answer. And then he gives the short answer. Here's the short answer. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer? That's the short answer. May it never be. Here's the short answer. We're dead to it. How can we do it? Okay? And then he gives the long answer of what it means to be dead with Christ. To be dead with Christ means that I vicariously participated in his death on the cross. When I vicariously participated in the death on the cross, therefore my old man, my sinful man, died with Christ. He was buried with Christ. He was raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. Therefore, I'm to reckon myself to be dead indeed to all these things. I'm to reckon myself to be alive with Christ. I'm no longer to yield my members as instruments to sin. I am to continuously, every moment, present my members as instruments of righteousness. That's the long answer. So let's quickly jump over to 6.15, our next rhetorical question and Paul's device. Shall we sin then because we're under grace? So let's... Let's just look at verse 14 to get the context, 6.14. For sin shall not have dominion, kurios, it shall not lord over you, it shall not rule you. For you're not under the law, but under grace. You remember what the, what the law could do? You remember what we studied, all those verses, right? It made our sin abound. It made you look more sinful. It counted up all of your sin. And we're not under that anymore. The law, what did it have? It had no ability to change your heart, did it? It had nothing. That's not its intent. And so when Paul says this, we're not under the law but under grace, what then shall we sin? If we're under grace and not under the law, and there's our obvious answer, meganoitoi, certainly not. There's our short answer. What is our, I mean, our obvious answer, what is our short answer here? Our short answer is, Whoever you present yourself to be a servant to, that's your master. Whatever it is that you're yielding to, that is who your true master is. Now he gives the long explanation of that. The long explanation is you can only serve one master at one time. And whoever that is, that's what you're going to do. But thanks be to God that you were slaves of sin, but you obeyed that form of doctrine that was delivered to you, and you have been set free from the slave of sin, and now you've got a new master, and your new master is God, and your fruit is no longer unto death, but your fruit is unto holiness. That's the long answer. Let's go to the next rhetorical section, 7-1. So 7.1, don't you understand, here's the question, that the law can only have dominion over somebody as long as it's living? That's the short answer. He doesn't give the obvious answer in this one. He just gives the short and the long answer. But the short answer is, as long as the husband's alive, the wife is subjected to that law until he's dead. So the long answer is you have become dead to the law. That's the illustration. You're dead to that law. Not only are you dead to that law, but now you can be married to another because you're freed from that law. You are married. Who are you married to? 
from Mary to the one who was raised from the dead. And then he says, for when we were in our flesh, the law was arousing our sinful passions. And we had the fruit unto death, but you're no longer under that. That which you were held by, you've been set free. So that now we serve in the newness of the Holy Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. There's a complete change of your relationship. And that was the rhetorical thing that Paul wanted to get across there. Now let's get down to the last one. 714. 713. Has then that which is good become death to me. So he concludes in verse 12, law is holy, the commandment holy, it's just, and it is good. And God was using what was holy, and that which is good, and that which is just, as a basis of attack against you, which seems almost counterintuitive. Go to verse 8 of chapter 7. But sin taking its occasion is the King James word. The New King James word is opportunity. But it's a military term. It means a place where military generals would get together, they would strategize, and they would plan to launch their attack. That's what the law was. The law got together and it strategized and says, okay, this is where I'm going to hit this person. And it took its occasion. It took its opportunity. The law was all of its strength to do that by the commandment. And here was the result of this attack. It produced in you and I all manners of evil desire. Whoa. That just doesn't sound right for a Jewish listener, does it? So then Paul says, his rhetorical question in 13, something that's holy, something that's just, and yet it's taking and stimulating all these wrong ideas and wrong thoughts in my heart. Paul says in 7, um, seven what is it, 7-7, um, seven, seven, and, and I think Paul, and I could be wrong, but as I studied it this week and poured over this and prayed over this, I think what Paul is talking about is that before he was a believer, that Paul wanted to do exactly what the law told him to do. And you think, well, wait a minute, that's a contradiction, because Paul says in the book of Philippians that he was blameless by the law's standard. And I think if you looked at the Apostle Paul's life, he was absolutely blameless. But I think before he got saved, and I might be wrong, and I'll confess that, I think that Paul was having this inner struggle with lust. with Not, not, not for women, but just coveting things. Paul was striving after position. Paul said, I was advancing in Judaism above many of my contemporaries of my own nation because I was so zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I think Paul was obsessed. I think he was so driven that he said, start throwing those stones at Stephen. And when he was confronted with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, that law that he thought was to bring life, it brought him death. And that's exactly what he says in 7, 7 through 13. Let's look at verse 9. He says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found it to bring death. Now what would every good Pharisee have thought of when he thought of the law? He would have thought of Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 1 where it says, Hear, O Israel, do these statutes and commandments so that you may live. That's what Paul was thinking. 
And then when he saw that he couldn't hold down his selfish ambitions, and I'm probably kind of doing some conjecture here. <laughs> I don't know. But when he got to Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26, and he writes the Galatians and he quotes this, Cursed be everyone who does not continue in everything written in the book of the law to do them. He says that commandment in Deuteronomy 6.4 I thought was going to bring me life. He says, but when I realized that I had to keep every single precept, it brought me death. So with all of that said, let's look at this last section and we'll look at the two options, the two ways of possibly interpreting this, and then we're going to take some things away from it this morning, and we're not going to leave here divided or arguing, but maybe discussing things that you've never thought of before, okay? So in 7.7, I'm sorry, 7.13, the short answer, the law was good. The law was holy. The law was just. Did that thing become death to me? Here's the obvious answer. Meganoikoi, certainly not. Here's the short answer. But sin, that it might appear sin, it was producing death in me through what is good. And then we've got the long answer in verse 14 all the way to 25. So that's the long answer. And we're going to look at those two options for the long answer. Paul is not answering the question. This is important. Because this is one of the reasons why I think I may have misinterpreted this passage in the past. Because Paul is not answering the question, why do I struggle with sin? That was a game changer for me. Because that's the way I always read the passage. I always read this with that lens, why am I struggling with sin? But that is not the question Paul is answering. Paul is answering was that which was good made sin. He's answering the insufficiency of the law. So the, the first option is that Paul is referring to his own personal struggles and how ineffective the law is in his life as a Christian. And as I said before, the first argument, and this was not just me, but I realized that this was arguments by many other authors as I studied it this week, is that this is just the natural way to interpret it. This is the natural way to read it. It just seems like that's the way the text flows. However, that, that is debatable. But you almost have to be taught that Paul is writing as an unbeliever because it doesn't just hit you that way. And so that's the first argument. It's, kind of, it's a weak argument, I admit. But that's the way I look at it. Secondly, some of these expressions that Paul uses in this passage seem hard to see them as an unbeliever that would say these kind of things. For example, would an unbeliever say that he has a hatred for sin? That just doesn't seem like an unbeliever would say that in 7.15. If you want to just look at that with me. It says, for what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I do not. And what I practice, what I hate. It doesn't sound like an unbeliever would actually say that, does it? Okay, that's, that's, that's argument number two. Um, look at 7.18. 7.18, for what I am doing, that is in my flesh, nothing but dwells. That seems like a real admission of humility, doesn't it? That seems like a believer would make that. A believer would hate sin. So I'm, I'm trying to give the, the best argument I can for this position. Uh, look at 7.22. I delight in the law of God according to my inward man. Now that, that to me sounds like a believer, doesn't it? Okay, we'll, we're, we're going to look at all these, so hold on. But I, I want to give the best argument I can for this side. Um. And then in 23, verse 23, he says, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. It doesn't seem like to me a believer, or an unbeliever, I'm sorry, an unbeliever would 
be, would be warring in his mind. He would just seem to be willfully doing sinful things without even warring or struggling with it. Okay? Um, the strongest argument that this is Paul currently as a believer is the present tense. And that was the one that I was really hung up on and said, I just can't get around that Paul is choosing to use the present tense right now. It must be Paul as a believer because he's using the present tense. If you look at verse 7, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin. Past tense. Look at 7.14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, present tense, carnal, sold under sin. What I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, I do not. I practice what I hate. All of these are present tense. All the way through the chapter, it's present tense. That seems like Paul is writing as a believer right now, having this turmoil in his heart with the law. The strongest That is the strongest argument. The fourth argument, I think, is a practical argument, and that is that every Christian, every honest Christian anyway, and hopefully all Christians are honest, will admit they've gone through times in their life where they have struggled with a besetting sin. And you just in despair, and you cry out, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? I thank Jesus Christ, my Lord, for that deliverance. So those are the arguments that this is Paul as a believer. So let's look at the arguments for Paul as an unconverted, pharisaical, moralistic Jewish person writing my first argument is that the majority of the Greek reading and Greek speaking early church fathers for the first 400 years of Christianity took this to be Paul the unbelieving Pharisee. Again, that's not a strong argument. They could have been wrong. It could have been just a tradition that they passed on, that they passed on to the next generation. But again, like I said, the only first notable church father was Augustine who took it different, and he only did it to take away a proof text from one of his opponents. Second reason that this is Paul before he was saved is the reason that the natural reading, like I talked about, the natural reading seems to present this is a believer struggling with sin because you and I are unfamiliar with Greek rhetoric and diatribal language. To speak of the Greek language having a tense. And this is the very first thing that you will learn in elementary Greek. Right, Elizabeth? And Brendan? And Anthony? That Greek really doesn't have a tense. It's more of an aspect or the way things occur. So tense is something that you and I as Westerners think of. But the original readers didn't think in that mindset. They thought in the way things were going on. And it's called the historical present, whereby a writer would take a past event, and you see this all through the New Testament, a past event, and he would write it out as a present struggle so that he could just show with vividness, the struggle and the angst that that person going through in the past. So why it seems natural to you and I, it doesn't necessarily seem natural to the ancient reader who knew and understood that rhetorical device. Paul is using a Hellenistic style of rhetoric, rhetoric known as prosopoporia, which means in front of your face, literally. And that's what he's doing, in which a person passionately argues in a provocative way that makes it interesting, easy to grab your attention, and that you want to respond to it. So that's the second reason that this could be taken, and I'm almost to the point where I say should be taken, that this is Paul 
the unbeliever. This section does not present a person who is struggling with sin. If you read it really closely, this is not somebody who's struggling with sin. This is somebody who feels utterly defeated by sin. That is not Paul the believer. That is Paul the unbeliever who feels totally defeated, not just struggling. Paul uses terms that are inconsistent with a believer and that inconsistent with what he said just in chapter 6 on how to have victory. For example, in 7.14, he says, I am fleshly. I am carnal. In 7.5, we said, for when we were in the flesh, for when we were carnal, the the passions of our flesh were aroused by the law. Then he goes on to say in 7.14, that I am sold under sin. Would a believer actually say, I am sold under sin? I can't imagine a believer saying that. Not when Paul has said, we are dead to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're risen with Christ. We're buried our old man. And that we are, what we were held by, we've, we've had the victory over. So let me just read this verse to you um, in uh, chapter 7. And verse, uh, where am I at? Uh, Verse 6. But now, having been delivered from the law and having died to what we were held by, how could we be a slave to sin? If we've been delivered to what we've been held by, that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So my, my third argument is that it doesn't present this person as struggling with sin, but rather one who's defeated by sin. Um. Look over at 622. This will be our last verse. I'm, I'm trying to, to wrap this up quickly. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. How should we understand that? The inward man. I can't find it in my notes because I'm kind of just going off my notes here. And so I'm just going to kind of go by what I remembered this week. But the inner man. The inner man does not necessarily mean the regenerated man, okay? That that is important to keep in mind. The inner man is that part where our rational thoughts, our reasoning faculties, and our instinct of what is morally right and wrong. And every unbeliever has that. And he's going to be held accountable for his sin because of that. And so Paul very well could have been saying, in my inner man, as a Jewish Pharisee who loved the law of God, who prided himself in the law of God, and in my inner man, I wanted to do that, but I had not been regenerated and I had no power to do it. There's no problem for an unbelieving Pharisee to concede that the law is holy and good and just and righteous. Every Pharisee, every un, because we are thinking of an unbeliever here, aren't we? But we need to think in first century. We need to think of who the author is. Who is the author? The author is the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a second-generation Pharisee. He was schooled by Gamaliel. So, of course, Paul would have delighted in his inner man as an unbeliever in the law of God. But I see another law in my members warring against my law of my mind, bringing me into captivity. That doesn't sound like a believer. So, how do we apply this passage of Scripture. Well, first thing I want to just emphasize again is that we need to refrain from judging others and their opinions that are different from ours on non-essential matters. If you and I disagree on this passage, and I'm not exactly 100% where I fall, and that's hard to get up and preach a passage where you just say, you know what, I don't know. But until I started studying this passage, I knew 
And that's what I want to point out to you. Until you really do your homework, until you really start to dig in a passage, you may not really understand it. So we need to refrain from, from just petty arguments with one another. And this is something else I want to emphasize, too. Until you and I can explain our opponent's position articulately, without caricature, without straw man, and without ad hominem arguments, you have no right to rebut it. And I hear I'm so sick of it. I, I mean, so many people on YouTube, and they will just bombast you, and if you don't look at it their way, a pastor who's been a pastor for 60 years and a lady on her YouTube was saying some things that he didn't agree with, didn't agree with and he had the audacity to say she just needs to keep her mouth shut. I've been a pastor for 60 years. I've got a master of divinity. I've got a doctoral of, of, of writing books and books and books. And, and I'm right. How dare she ever question me? He didn't give an argument why her, her things were wrong other than that he was right because he was so pompous and arrogant about it. So we just need to be careful. Number two, try to come to difficult passage without preconceived positions and try to be objective. But more importantly, you and I should use the law because it's holy and it's just and it's good. Whether Paul was a believer here or whether he was an unbeliever here, the law has the same effect. It's holy. It's just. It's good. It will expose our sin. And it should cause great humility in our lives. Secondly, the law reveals the will of God. You want to know what God's will for your life is? It's the law of God. And you know that there are more imperatives in the New Testament than there are in the Old Testament. It's filled with commands. So don't think that you're under, under grace that there's not any more commands. They are everywhere in the New Testament. So we ought to understand that God's commands are God's will. Third, the law has power to convict. It's impartial. It's not going to take a side. The law makes us accountable for God, before God. And when we sin, we need to be quick to confess and repent and receive God's grace and forgiveness. The law can be used as a believer to remind him of his abject spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. However, I do want to say this, that the normal Christian life should not be one of consistent defeat. Don't ever use this passage and say, well, look at Paul. He did the things that he didn't want to do. The things that he was supposed to do, he never did them. I think we need to refrain from ever using that passage for that because that was never its intent. The normal Christian life and the path of victory, I think, was found in chapter 6 and chapter 7, and chapter 8, rather. And we'll get to chapter 8 next week. So we're under grace. That's what we should conclude as well. Grace has crucified all the handwritten requirements that you can't fulfill. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to revel in the grace of God. We need to revel that grace has crucified my old man. We need to embrace the fact that grace has raised me to be a new creature and to have a new walk spiritual speaking. Grace transforms us from a performance-based religion trying to please God to a relationship of love. This week, I'll close with this illustration of prayer meeting. We were talking about a young lady who's in a performance-based religion, and she feels guilt all the time. And she's begun to work, and she's realized that she hasn't been giving her tithe. And then she started to calculate all the back tithe that she owed. 
and she just went into this whole turmoil. How can I ever be right with God? How can I ever go into that spiritual temple that I'm supposed to go into? If I can't even do this as a teenager, I might as well just give up. God will never be happy with me. And we, as Christians, we can put ourselves under that same legalistic system. God forbid that we should do that. Remember, this passage is not teaching about a personal struggle with sin. The question is whether or not the law is good and holy, and if it is sufficient to transform us. This passage is teaching us that the law makes our sin stand out. This passage is showing a vivid, beautiful, white backdrop. Backs, drop, I don't know and then this ugly mud thrown up against it. And that's so our sin. So that's what this passage should help us to see. And sin becomes exceedingly sinful when we see the law. Our only hope is to cry out, Oh, wretched man that I am. This morning, if you've been coming to North Valley Bible Church and you still haven't just taken that step of faith and say, I want to trust Jesus. I see that I'm a sinner. It is so blatantly obvious. Cry out and say, who will save me from this death? Notice that Paul didn't say, what will save me? He didn't say, how will I be saved? He said, who? And that who is so simple. It's Jesus. Trust his finished work. And if you're a believer, and you have been dabbling with sin. Who's going to deliver you? How are you going to get out of that? It's your union with Jesus. Claim it, believe it, and live in it. This is one time where I say, yes, name it and claim it. You are resurrected with Christ. You are a new creature. Your old man has been crucified. Live who you are in Christ. Let's close this morning. Father, thank you.